Have you ever heard a song on the radio or on a playlist or if you're of a certain age on a mixtape that someone made for you and you fall in love with the song? So you go and buy the band's album, but the song that you fell in love with sounds nothing like the rest of the songs by that band. Then you realize the song you fell in love with is the outlier. In this episode, we explore the best examples of the gateway songs that make you go, wait, what? Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. Each episode deals with another question in music fandom. The kind of questions that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college. So today, with the help of some smart people, we're going to come up with the answer. Okay, Clint, what's today's question? Today's question is, what's the best example of a band's hit single that was a total outlier? That's the age-old question. So Clint, there are literally a million examples of this, and we hope that we're going to hear from people about the ones we overlooked or didn't highlight. But Clint, help us define the phenomenon we're discussing today. Well, I think there's a bunch of things that are at play here. First of all, I went through a massive list of songs, and the one thing that I discovered was that many times the acoustic song of a band is the one that is their biggest hit. It's the one that makes them famous. Right. And so you've got these like edgy rock bands and then they have this one song that's an acoustic jam and that's the one that takes off, but that's nothing like the band at all. Right. There's countless examples of this. All right. Start us off. What's your first example? All right. My first one is, have you ever heard of a band from Illinois called the plain white tees? Yes. Now, I didn't know much about this band. What I knew about this band was Hey There, Delilah. Hey there, Delilah, what's it like in New York City? I'm a thousand miles away, but girl, tonight you look so pretty. Yes, you do. Yeah. Their hit song. Yeah. Right? Love that song. Turns out they're like an hour pop indie rock, Jimmy Eat World style, like early 2000s rock band. And then they have this one song that sounds nothing like the band, but was a massive hit. So Plain White Tees, the guy that started it was Tom Higginson. In 1999, Tom Higginson broke a bunch of vertebrae in his spine. He was in a car crash. He was driving the band's van. So he was laid up for months. And during that time, he decided, you know, this is it. I'm going to focus on music. I'm going to do this. Started taking the career more seriously. So 2002, they self-financed their first record. The record is called Stop. Let's just play some tracks off that real fast, just to, so you can get the idea of what we're dealing with here. Great. This song's called Stop. So you can see, Rich, it's like pretty up-tempo rock. Rock pop. They toured that album for a while, had some you know, lineup changes. People came and went. And then they got the newest lineup together, and they went in the studio in 2005 and recorded an album called All That We Needed. And on this album was the record Hey There, Delilah. They get signed to Hollywood Records based on that. And they put out a new version of Hey There, Delilah on this new album with a string section released in September 2006. Oh, what you do to me? Oh, what you do to me? 
Hey there, Delilah Reach, number one on the Hot 100, and stayed there for two weeks. This song was written for track star Delilah DiCrescenzo, whom Higginson had met in 2002. So the song received two Grammy nominations, and Every Second Counts was certified gold. Obviously a massive departure, just guitar and voice and the strings. This is a great example because I do, I like this song a lot, and I'm drawn to this approach and this style of song and i'm much less drawn to the music of the rest of their catalog and so it's no wonder that this is the song that broke through right so in 2008 they released a new record called big bad world and that had two hit singles one two three four it's easy as one two one two, there's three, only four. one thing to do three words for you Here's an example of a situation where the band strikes gold. And so they're mining. They found what works and then started writing songs in that way. But they're still going, still recording, still touring. So that's my first one. All right, Clint. My first nominee is by a band from Athens, Georgia. The band is R.E.M. And the song is shiny, happy people. So lead singer Michael Stipe has said, it's a fruity pop song written for children. If there was one song that was sent into outer space to represent R.E.M. for the rest of time, I would not want it to be shiny, happy people. Stipe took the phrase shiny happy people from a Chinese propaganda poster used after the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests, which I find so interesting. This fruity bubblegum song, as he calls it, started as this dark satirical translation of an authoritarian regime's attempt to whitewash its suppression of a democracy movement. Back to the song. It features guest vocals by Kate Pearson of the B-52s also from Athens, Georgia. Shiny, happy people Shiny, happy people Interesting tidbit, Clint. It was used as a theme song to the unaired pilot for a new sitcom by NBC called Friends. Huh. And then ultimately, NBC replaced the song with the Rembrandt's I'll Be There For You song we discussed in the last episode. Wow. I'll be there for you. When it came out, critics didn't know how to consider it. R.E.M. was better known for darker themes, like it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's Losing my religion. That's me in the corner. The title is like, okay, losing my religion. Everybody hurts. Everybody hurts. Pretty dark. The song, Shiny Happy People. In 1995, Michael Stipe said he hated the song. It was one of the few hits not included on their 2003 Greatest Hits album, even though the song had been a huge hit. 
R.E.M. rarely played it live, but as Michael Stipe got older, he seems to have come to terms with the song. In 2011, Stipe said that while he found it sort of embarrassing, the fact that it had become a hit for them, he realizes that many people's idea of R.E.M., and me in particular, is very serious, with me being a very serious kind of poet. But I'm actually quite funny. At least my bandmates think I am. My family thinks so. My boyfriend thinks so. So I must be. But that doesn't always come through in my music. But it does in Shiny Happy People. It's so funny that you have no control over the hits. Yeah. People talk about it all the time. They record an album and, you know, at least the way it used to be, they'd pick a single, the first single, which wasn't even necessarily the biggest one they thought was going to hit. Right. You know, they'd release the first one. Maybe it was the second one that they were, the second single was going to be the massive hit. But sometimes you release something and it takes off for whatever reason. You have no idea and you have no control over it. And then it defines you for the rest of your life. It's so interesting. So this is just like that song, Better Man by Pearl Jam. They vehemently did not want to put it on their album. And the producer was like, listen, I mean, it's a great song. And they're like, this is so poppy. It's so not what we do. And they fought it and fought it and fought it. Finally, they put it on the album and it's their biggest song. Okay, Clint, what's your second nominee? My second nominee is going to be from a band called Extreme, band from Boston, formed in 1985 and was huge in the early 90s. The band is made up of Gary Sharon, who is the singer, and drummer Paul Geary. They were in a band called The Dream, but the name Extreme, X-Dream. Oh, that's interesting. I never knew that. One of the biggest bands in the early 90s. I think they sold over 10 million albums. But if you listen to Extreme, check out Get the Funk Out. Sounds like it would fit in a Guns N' Roses set. So that song was on the same album as the song we're about to discuss. Crazy. The song we're about to discuss is one of the biggest songs of the early 90s. It's called More Than Words. Huge. Reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100. And it was from the band's 1990 album, Porno Graffiti. The album peaked at number 10. That was a massive, a massive album. But. More than words sounds absolutely nothing like extreme. More than words enters the Hot 100 in March of 91 at number 81 and eventually rose all the way to number one. This song 
features rich one of my favorite things about music and that is the under harmony so let's discuss under harmony for two seconds more than words is all you have to do to make it real then you wouldn't have to say that you love me yes love it as singers it's pretty easy to do that upper harmony, right? It's pretty easy to get one, one inversion above the lead vocal. But as soon as you go underneath, the whole mechanism changes. There's a lot more holding of a note rather than following the melody, right? And so it's a skill that is learned over time. Well, let's break this down. So for people who may not be thinking in terms of harmony, when a singer sings a melody, the harmony, if there's one, generally is the third above mm -hmm. and to your point singing the under harmony so rather than going higher going lower is so interesting and compelling but it's also as a singer it's hard to get your brain to think that way it is because you're used to following the melody in a different way when you're singing above it's just a different you're making chords Who's the best example of this that we know? I was thinking this is a whole episode. But first of all, the the first one that comes to mind is John Lennon. Yes. John Lennon was amazing at it. And a lot of it has to do with the timbre of someone's voice. The more reedy, the more... Cutting. What's the word? Cutting. Yeah, it's more cutting. The more it cuts, the more it comes through. So John Lennon, right away, he's got sort of that nasally thing going. And, and so it cuts right through the mix. John Lennon. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her under your skin. And, and then who's the second best under harmony we know? I think we are privy to one of the greats of all time. Yes. And that is Bradigan from Dispatch. Yes. Uh, personally, I don't know anyone who can do that as well. Although Peter Day is a close third. Peter Day does a great job. He does a great under Let's listen to an example of Dispatch where Brad is singing the under harmony. If you'd call my name out loud. If you'd call my name out loud Do you suppose that I would come running? Do you suppose I'd come at all? I suppose when you listen to it as a general listener, you're like, oh, wow, cool, singing, yay. But what he's doing is is not easy. It's really hard, yeah. It's really hard. Another example is Alice in Chains. Huh. They have a, such a signature harmony sound, and many times it's under. And it's under in a way that's not like Dispatch. It's it's more of a dissonant under harmony. I don't even know how to explain it, but let's listen to an Alice in Chains song. Here they come to snuff the There's an example of just a different flavor of underharmony. But 
back to more than words. This is such a great example, Clint, because just think about the name of the band is Extreme. So like that's that's the first red herring. The second is that the name of the album is what? Porno Graffiti. <laughs> Porno Graffiti, the second red herring. And then you get this like super sweet, earnest, acoustic ballad. If you heard this song and you're like, oh my God, this is my, the kind of music that I really like. Yeah. And then you buy porno graffiti. You're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I don't know if there's a better example. After all of this happened, yeah. they became massive. So then Gary Sharon went to work with Van Halen on Van Halen 3. And they sold some records, but it was no Van Halen record. Right. I think it was it was a considered a failure by the band. It just didn't didn't have the riff rocky Van Halen thing. And so the band is currently back together after a big hiatus and they're recording a new record. So good for them. I, the the question will be, will they record another power ballad? We've talked about it a million times in this podcast. A great song can be done any different way right the greatest songs i would say are the ones that you can play on an acoustic guitar and it carries this for me is a guilty pleasure i don't know if it was just the time in my life or if i was in love with a girl at the time that was this was our thing or i don't know i no, definitely Clint, i say <laughs> love this proudly wear it wear it proudly it's a great finger-picking acoustic guitar song, right? It's got this, like, it's actually the first song that I learned how to do that, where you pulse multiple strings with multiple fingers. Do you know what I mean? Yes. As a guitar player. It's also in G. How many hit songs are acoustic in G? We actually have an entire episode about hit songs and the percentage of hit songs that are either in the key of C or in the key of G. Yes, and this is the prime example. Well, More Than Words is a defining example of what it is we're talking about. Yes. All right. My second nominee, Clint, is a song called Dire Maker by Led Zeppelin. It's from their 1973 album, Houses of the Holy. The song began at the band's rehearsals at Stargroves Manor in 1972. So Stargroves was the English countryside manor owned by Mick Jagger in the 1970s and used by the Stones and other bands to record some incredibly iconic music for the 1970s, including The Who's Won't Get Fooled Again and beginning in 1972, Led Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy. So during the rehearsals for the band's album, drummer John Bonham started messing around with a beat that was sort of this hybrid 1950s doo-wop and then adding a slight offbeat tempo that was reggae influenced. That reggae meets doo-wop arrangement was such a departure for the rest of the catalog that when the song came out, there was some really harsh criticism of the track. In an interview in 1977, in some publication called Trouser Press, 
Jimmy Page said, I really didn't expect people not to get it. I thought it was pretty obvious. The song itself was a cross between reggae and a 50s number, stuff like Poor Little Fool. So this is Ricky Nelson's Poor Little Fool. Let's listen to that song for a second. So this song was a number one hit song in 1958, when Jimmy Page would have been 14. And we've talked about the defining age for musical tastes, right? And Jimmy Page was in that sweet spot. So he took that progression, roughly, and the doo-wop feel and combined it with a reggae groove that John Bonham had sort of been experimenting with in the studio. And boom, there's a new vibe, a new flavor from Led Zeppelin. But it wasn't just critics who didn't get it. Led Zeppelin's bassist, John Paul Jones, hated it. Huh. And he said it started off as a studio joke, not as an experiment, and that actually releasing this song wasn't well thought through. But Robert Plant, for his part, thought it would be a hit and wanted to release it as a single in the UK. So Atlantic Records pressed advanced copies to be sent to DJs in the UK. But when the song sputtered in the US, they scrapped the idea to release it as a single in the UK. And that advanced copy that was sent to DJs, it was like a very limited press, is actually like a major collector's item Wow! as a fan of Led Zeppelin. A few more tidbits about this song. First, it's one of the few songs in their catalog that all four band members are listed as co-writers, hmm. probably because it emerged as a jam rather than as a finished thing that Jimmy Page brought to the studio. Here's something I never knew about this song, Clint. The title comes from an old joke where two friends are having the following exchange. My wife's going to the Caribbean. Jamaica? No, she wanted to go. <laughs> so Jamaica is a joke on the pronunciation of Jamaica in the English accent. Jamaica? Jamaica? <laughs> that sounds Australian, but one final note. Even though it's an outlier, it served as the gateway drug to Led Zeppelin's full catalog for one of your favorite artists. Can you guess which one? Guns and Roses. Axl Rose said that yes. Dire Maker <laughs> meant a lot to him as a teenager. And it's what wow. ultimately got him into the rest of the catalog, which ultimately got him into heavy rock. Huh. That's. Awesome. But you know what I mean? Like, if you listen to that song, if that's the song that you hear first, and then you buy... Or... Yeah. Yeah, it's different. It's totally different. And I love that. What's your next... Well, I got I got a couple things to say real quick. Yeah. So... I think there's a lot of things going on when you have a hit song that doesn't sound like the rest of your catalog. For one, a lot of times people get new members in a band, right? Right. Over time, people leave, people come. And so when that person is a major force 
you're obviously going to have different things. I mean, a perfect example is let's look at Van Halen for a second. Oh yeah. David Lee Roth era Van Halen and Sammy Hagar Van Halen are two totally different things. Yes. So when it's love, the Sammy Hagar era, let's hear when it's love. Versus Panama, David Lee Roth era. Totally. Totally different. And so in that sense, if you had a massive hit with a new member that didn't sound like the previous stuff, that's that's a way that this can happen. And the audience then falls in love with the Sammy Hagar vibe and like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to buy the earlier album. 1984. Yeah. You, you're listening to David Lee Roth and it's a totally different vibe right. and attitude. Right. The other thing is just staying up with the times. So let's look at a band called Chicago. Okay. So Chicago used to be Chicago Transit Authority. They had to change their name because of the Chicago Transit Authority didn't want to get anything twisted in their in their marketing. So, but they started out as like a a horn band, like a big time R&B rock horn band. What they became known as they got real big from their 80s power ballads. So you're the inspiration. You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. You bring feeling to my life. You're the inspiration. Wanna have it Hard to say I'm sorry. So they got hugely famous and their 250 million streams on Spotify are from these power ballads, not from their horn driven rock and roll that they started out as. Right. And they're trying to make a living. They're trying to make hit songs, you know. And here's one more piece. When a band starts out, there's no producer generally, right? They're not in a high end studio. So when a band starts to have a little bit of success, all of a sudden they're given money. So their production becomes slicker. Their songs become tighter. They, You know what I mean? So you can start out with like, let's look at a band called Kings of Leon. When they started out, if you listen to their first album, it's like garage rock awesomeness. like four dudes in a room just jamming and then if you listen to this the progression of their albums over time they become much slicker much mm. more produced much more palatable for the world
right? Some people are into the garage rock thing, but most people I would say are more into the slicker production because it's more what they they're used to hearing. So there's another example of a band that like you hear their hit single and it sounds like one thing. And then you go back to their catalog and it's this dirty rock garage thing. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound like the same band. Clint, before we go any further, can we go to the comments? Let's go to the comments. Let's go to the comments. This is a submission to our Mondegreen series. Oh, yes. And it's unattributed because I can't remember who said this, but it's a great one and I have to share it. And apologize, we'll have to do a future Boneheads once we figure out who actually gave us this idea. But it's from the song Don't Stop Me Now. That's why they call me Mr. Fart and Hide. Totally stupid and immature, but made me laugh. That is from Dave Fredrickson on Facebook about the Lips Incorporated song that we discussed on the last episode. He says, not sure if anyone has brought this up yet, but Funky Town by Lips Incorporated is a play on words. Say the name of the band, those two words together out loud, and you'll hear the true band name. Lips Incorporated. But don't say the full incorporated. Lip sync? Oh! Whoa. That's pretty cool. That's super cool. Thanks, Dave, for letting us Dude. in on that little tidbit. That's so good. All right, Clint, what's your third nominee? Well, my third nominee is a list of songs. Okay. And I'm going back to the acoustic-ness of a song that doesn't sound like the band, right? Okay. So I'm just going to name a bunch. No Rain by Blind Melon. And all I can do is just some teeth for two. And speak my point of view, but it's not safe. It's not safe. I just want... By far their biggest hit. Blind Melon was a band, Shannon Hoon, from West Lafayette, Indiana. And their biggest hit by far is No Rain, which is an acoustic-y, driven, jangly, very little drum, just perfect song, right? But doesn't sound like it doesn't. Blind Melon. Blind Melon is almost like a jam band. They're almost, it's a two-guitar, a lot of like harmony, a lot of like dirty rock jam band. And then they get massively famous from No Rain. Second example, Good Riddance by Green Day. Oh, that's a good one. Something unpredictable, but in the end is right. I hope you had the time of your life. So Green Day, I think it's their biggest selling hit, biggest hit that they've had. And it's like this acoustic, heartfelt, really nice, ballady, melancholic thing. Love that example. And it sounds nothing like the band. Perfect, perfect song, in my opinion. Also a song in G, acoustic guitar. Drive by Incubus. Another example of where the acoustic song on the album 
takes off. They're such a quirky, electric, awesome band. I love Incubus. If that's your gateway in, you're like, whoa, this is not the same band. That's interesting. And finally, Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. And I don't want the world to see me Cause I don't think that they'd understand So they'd had some acoustic hits, but the band started in Buffalo, New York. They were like a, a rock band, like electric guitar trio, dirty garagey thing. Wow. And then they hit with Iris. All of a sudden, they're like, we got to start writing songs like that. How are we going to do that? And I think they went through a massive period where they didn't release anything because he couldn't write based on that success of Iris. Because it was lightning strike and he couldn't. It was such an outlier for him, you know? Yes. So that's my third. It's just a, a list of others. Who you got? All right. My third is the song Touch of Grey ah, by The Grateful Dead. Good choice. So the music was written by Jerry Garcia to lyrics by Robert Hunter. And it's often known more by the words from the refrain, I will get by, I will survive. When it came out as a single in 1987, it was accompanied by a music video, which was the first one the band had ever made. And the song was included on the 1987 album In the Dark, which was the band's 12th studio album. But it had actually emerged in the band's catalog in their live set five years earlier, first performed as an encore on September 15th, 1982 at the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland. Hmm. When the song came out in 1987, it was the first song by the Grateful Dead to crack the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. To give you a sense of what an outlier it was for the Grateful Dead to be in the top 10 at that time, let me read you some of the other nine <laughs> acts in the top 10 that week of September 26, 1987. Number 10, Prince's You Got the Look. You got the look, got the look. You Number nine, the Grateful Dead's Touch of Grey. Number eight, Los Lobos, their version of La Bamba. Number four, Bananarama's I Heard a Rumor. Come on. Number three, Michael Jackson's I Just Can't Stop Loving You. Number two, White Snakes, Here I Go Again. Here I go again on my own. And the top spot that week on the Billboard Hot 100 was Whitney Houston's Didn't We Almost Have It All. And the Grateful Dead. Didn't we almost have it all? So somehow the Grateful Dead is in the midst of those songs, Prince and Europe and White Snake and Whitney Houston. The previous highest charting song for the Grateful Dead was from 1971, and it was Truckin'. And that song reached number 64 on the charts. Truckin', got my chips cashed in. Keep truckin', like the doodah man together. 
I found an article in Esquire magazine from earlier this year titled The Great Touch of Grey Debate. And it asks the question, 35 years later, is the Grateful Dead's only top 10 hit the worst thing that ever happened to the band or the song that saved it? Mm. And in it, the author Kendall Hamilton recalls an anecdote where the band learned about their chart success. He writes, Dennis McNally, then the band's publicist, recalls addressing the assembled musicians backstage one night at Madison Square Garden. I said, I have some imposing news to tell you. And they all sort of looked at me and I said, you've made the top 10. And guitarist Jerry Garcia's response, I am appalled. (laughs) (laughs) He was only somewhat joking. So why did it break through? Well, Hamilton points out it was certainly catchy, driven by Garcia's distinct propulsive strum, melodic soloing, and smoke-inflected, seen-it-all, and then some vocals. The verses, in which the narrator enumerates and ultimately accepts a litany of minor indignities and imperfect circumstances. These are the lyrics. I know the rent is in arrears. The dog has not been fed in years. It's even worse than it appears, but it's all right. Cow is giving kerosene. Kid can't read at 17. The words he knows are all obscene, but it's all right. It's sort of a baby boomer anthem of acknowledgement. And as Hamilton suggests, we will get by is not exactly we are the champions. (laughs) But another thing that contributed to the song breaking through, Clive Davis, then the president of Arista Records, he was dead set on it becoming a hit. And we've talked in a previous episode about how a song becomes a hit. Well, if Clive Davis believes in it, Mm -hmm. that's one way. Mm -hmm. We should do an episode on the power and influence of Clive Davis as a rainmaker. Oh my God, that's a multi-episode. All right. You gave us a quick list of songs. Let me do My Side of Fries. Okay. So My Side of Fries, how about Mr. Big? Oh yeah. Remember them? Oh yeah. They were a rock band in the late 80s. And similar to Extreme, the band that you just talked about, they found breakthrough success with an acoustic soft rock anthem really different from their normal fare. The song was To Be With You, a ballad released in November 1991. So around the same time as Extreme's More Than Words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was the second single from their second album, Lean Into It. number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for three weeks and atop the charts in 11 other countries, including Australia, Canada, Germany, New Zealand, and really importantly, in Japan. Because despite the fact that they never could manage to sustain that level of success anywhere except Japan, where they remained massively successful. We're huge in Japan. Huge in Japan. Love it. So a side note on Eric Martin, the lead singer and the songwriter. In 1985, before Mr. Big formed, he was asked to audition to replace David Lee Roth. He received a call directly from Eddie Van Halen, who told him he really liked his voice and he wanted him to fly down to Los Angeles from the Bay Area where he lived. So he flies to L.A. and after arriving, he runs into Sammy Hagar 
who at the airport tells him that he already got the job. Okay. So Martin turns around and headed back to San Francisco. Wait, was Hagar just like lying to him? That would be amazing. <laughs> right. Maybe it was going to be an audition. Yeah. And Sammy Hagar was like, nah, nah, that, man, don't go. I already got I it. I got it. That would be awesome. <laughs> oh, I, I think it's important to say this is the sort of the, the pink elephant. We haven't mentioned the Beatles yet in this episode. But if you fell in love with the Beatles by listening to any one of their hit singles, let's say Help. Help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. You know, I need someone. And then you bought the album or you bought some more music thinking you were going to get more help. Nope. You'd be confused by listening to Yesterday or The Long and Winding Road. I mean, it almost goes without saying that the Beatles' range and variety in their music is hard to put into words. I feel like it's just a list of outliers. It's a list of outliers. Their whole catalog, yeah. Their whole career, the progression of their career was outliers. Yeah. As opposed to the bands that we've talked about pretty much have a sound. Yes, yes. And their song that broke through sounds nothing like them. Right. There was a singular outlier. Although the original stuff, like the early Beatles stuff, has a thing. But once you get to Rubber Soul, from there on... I don't think there is a style to the Beatles. You're totally right. So those are our nominees. Are we prepared to say, what is the greatest outlier? I can say with great confidence that it's more than words by extreme. I'm going to back you on that. It's funny because it speaks to me. And then I go listen to the rest of the catalog and I'm like, eh, not, not, <laughs> no, not my cup of tea. But that one's just a banger. And the under harmony. I love that you brought that up. I think that's a really interesting little nuance that most people listening to it are not focused on. But that is such a defining part of that sound. It is of that song in particular. I don't even think I can find a better example of under harmony in a hit song than that. I think it takes the cake. Yeah. More than words. So. Did we do it? I think we did it. I think we definitely did it. <laughs> I love this topic. And I think we may have to come back for a another episode of this when we get some comments from people of what we missed. There's going to be so many, so many that we missed. Well, we hope you had fun, as much fun as we did. And we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age-old age question. question. Follow us on Instagram at The Age Old Question. Facebook, The Age Old Question. We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. Also, if you're digging the podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash The Age Old Question and consider becoming a part of our Age Old Question family. With your support, we'll be able to answer many more age-old questions. Thanks.